sermon passage today is Second Corinthians chapter five. I will be preaching from uh, two Corinthians five twenty one. We're going to read the whole chapter. Listen to God's holy, infallible, inerrant, life-giving word. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If dwelling by putting, out, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Sorry, verse 3. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be, we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, uh, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Uh, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit of assurance. The spirit is, uh, sorry, verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be seen who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled to know that we have uh, once regarded you who is the creator of all the universe according to the flesh, that we may not be regarded according to the flesh, and that we may know the benefit of being spirit-filled, having our minds in the heavenly places with you and spending an eternity with you. And we pray that as your word goes forth, you would rise our thoughts to see the depth, the height, the breadth, the length of the love of Christ, 
for the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray that we would uh, see the beauty of the gospel, the great exchange, indeed the divine exchange that you wrote for us. Pray that you would bring the words that are proclaimed from this pulpit not only to our ears, but to our hearts, and that that would affect our hands and how we apply it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the 16th century had been the epitome of the dark age and the fallacy of the papacy. Um, one man called Johann Tetzel had been uh, tasked almost by the Roman Catholic Church to propagate the um, heresy of selling indulgences and penance. Of course, his idea was that he wanted to build a better um, church in Rome, the Catholic Church of uh, St. Peter, uh, Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, one monk called Martin Luther smelt a rat. Uh, this rat was Johann Tetzel. And Martin Luther was not taking chances. So 506 years ago, about two days from today, give or take, on the uh, 1517, 31st day of October, uh, Martin Luther went straight for the door of Wittenberg uh, Castle Church in Germany. And with uh, a letter almost with ink dripping wet, he nailed the 95 theses, which are in fact arguments and affirmations against the penances and indulgences that the Roman Catholic Church led by Johann Tetzel had been propagating. It would be three years after that in 1520 where Martin Luther, in wrestling with the scriptures, God would open his eyes to the gospel uh, to see the beauty of justification by faith. Uh, Martin Luther would later say that when he realized that the righteousness of God revealed from heaven is actually an alien righteousness that God imputes in the hearts of believers, he says, I quote, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened and I went right through. Now, 10 years ago, as a freshman in college, I had been put out of my room by my roommate who had other plans for the, uh, for the space. And I found myself in the assembly hall in an overnight prayer, Kesha in college. At 2 a.m., the preacher would make an altar call and I responded. I did not quite grasp the gospel at that time. And it would be about a year later when seated in a preaching in the same fellowship at college, uh, that the preaching of justification was presented to me. I, at that moment, understood why Christ came, and I got to understand what he has to do with my sin, and what his righteousness has got to do with me, and overcome with emotions, tears welling up in my eyes, my heart raising uncontrollably, I believed in the gospel of Christ. I was born again. Now, what captured Luther? What captured me? What has captured some of you believers? Uh, what causes anybody to respond in such a fashion, appreciating the gospel of God and live for him? I welcome you to hear about this incredible account of the greatest exchange 
that has ever happened. So please back on up and let's roll. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this is the second inspired letter that Paul is going to write to the church of Corinth. It's about the third or fourth letter that he's writing to them. And the main theme in this letter is going to him defending his apostleship. And as he does that, he is going to show his weakness and he's going to, to show how um, he has been under difficulty and hardships that have been brought by some super apostles and people that you know, have just been causing him pain. But one of the greatest themes that we find in this letter, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, as a thorn is put in his flesh, he says, uh, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The same theme is continued in chapter 13, verse 4, where scripture says that Christ was crucified in weakness, but he dwells in the power of God. Now, the setting of this verse, as Paul comes to the end of um, chapter 5, and why it matters that it is good news to, to anyone, is that this verse is being written to a church, the church in Corinth, the saints of the church in Corinth. Now, because this verse as it is fails with, fell, uh, you know, fell with, or falls with a lot of pronouns, I will first labor to insert the pronouns or the, to qualify the pronouns with their respective subjects. Now, if you read the preceding verse, which is verse 20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ and God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be seen who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. It is fair that the hour there is human's sake, but actually the hour there is talking about the believers of the church of Corinth. And he, God, God is the one, you notice that from verse 20, God is a subject. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ and God is making his appeal through us. So God is the active party here. He's making his appeal through us, uh, through us, but on behalf of Christ. So uh, for our sake, our human's sake, our believer's sake, God made him, Christ Jesus, to be seen. Uh, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ Jesus, we sinners, the sinners and saints now at the church of Corinth, might become the righteousness of God. Now, this applies to the Church of Corinth and the saints of the Church of Corinth as much as it applies to us today. Now, we start with this first subject in this uh, portion, who is God? Uh, you notice that God is the one who is actively doing everything in this verse. For our sake, God. Now, one of the implied attributes of God that happens to be shown here is his sovereignty. Uh, we see that God is a sovereign God. The text says, he made him who knew no sin, to become sin. Now, what does the sovereignty of God mean? It has been rightly stated that God is, to say that God is sovereign simply means that the God who is, is the God who reigns. Now, we see repeatedly in Psalm 93.1 that the Lord reigns. Psalm 96.10, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. 
Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. And entirely, the whole theme of scriptures is that the Lord reigns. In the beginning, God created. The story of the Bible, the story of the universe is a story of God. One man, A.W. Pink, rightly put it that God is, sorry, the God, uh, God is God and he does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. Now that is simply that God controls and rules over everything in the universe. God is meticulously running over the affairs of life according to the counsel of his will. Now he has a purpose which is accomplishing. Now you realize that God is not controlled by fate, he's not controlled by the will of man, he's not controlled by the presumptions of man, he's not controlled by mysticism, he is reigning and enthroned forever. Now there is no higher throne outside or apart from the throne of God. There is no cabinet that is helping him to rule. God reigns. Realize that says that there is no particle outside of the control of God. Now, this teaching has been said to be the godness of God. In other words, if he is not sovereign, he is not God. Anybody that believes in any form of God absolutely has to believe that the person he believes to as God is sovereign. If he is not sovereign, he is not God. Now, our God, the true God, says in Isaiah 46, 9b and 10, that I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Now, what does the sovereign king of the universe have to do with humans? Now, the sovereign God, the God who is, the God who reigns, condescends to act for our sake. Why, you may ask. Come with me as we see the evergreen truth in this verse. Now, for our sinner's sake, God made Christ Jesus to be seen. But first, let's think about the second attribute of God, which is implied in this text. Now, why does the sovereign God make Christ sin? You realize that we are almost talking about two things that do not see eye to eye. We're talking about a sovereign holy God who is actually acting on behalf of some people to make somebody sin. Now, if this does not start with you, please wake up and consider that God is infinitely holy. The attribute being declared around the throne of God, day and night in all eternity, in the superlative degree, is the holiness of God. I read in Isaiah 6, 1, 4, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. The same is repeated in Revelation 4, where the holiness of God is being declared day and night in superlative degree. Now, the holiness of God means his otherness. And God is here shown to be exalted above all. He is seen to be transcendent, and he is seen to be majestic. He is seen to be enthroned in splendor. He is dressed in glory. He towers in holiness. To say that God is holy, sec secondarily, also means that he has infinite moral purity. Everything about him is perfect. Now God is therefore not neutral towards sin. But you notice here that human beings are sinful. So let us for a moment think about the second character, the sinful human, for our sake. God created humans in his image. Humans sinned and marred the image of God. 
Now all humans have likewise fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. And all humans bear a sinful nature. We are born in sin. We are sinners. Uh, Romans 3, 10, 18 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one is seeking for God. Now all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet is swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And notice that the relationship that God has with these um, fallen creatures, sinful creatures, is that he is their creator, he is their judge, and he is the lawgiver. That means that we owe God our life, our accountability and obedience. Uh, but do we? You see, we naturally live as though we created ourselves and sustain ourselves. Uh, we hate being accountable for our actions, for our words, for our thoughts. And we rebel against God's law. We have not loved God with our souls, hearts, and mind. We naturally love sin. We hate the true God. I see what that does. Sin is an affront against God. Sin is moral treason. So can a wretched man, a wretched sinful man, no reconciliation with his maker? Or are we forever dubbed? I consider that in the midst of that gloom, the sovereign king and creator also has infinite justice. Realize that God will not pass any transgression and iniquity. Now God has an unbending justice. Exodus 34, 7 and Nahum 1, 3b clearly state that he will by no means clear the guilty. The infinitely holy God will render justice against all sin. Now all sin must be punished. The God of all the earth will judge right. He cannot be unjust. He does all things well. Nor sinful humans, we deserve God's justice. For all sin has to be paid for. God's justice demands that we die. For the wages of sin is death. Yes, that means spiritual death, which is our condition at birth. But that also means physical death, which all men experience with the exception of Elijah and Enoch. And eternal death, which is a second death, eternally cast away into hell in a place reserved for the devil, demons, and the rebels of God. Now that is hard sinking. The situation is dire and dreadfully hopeless. Until we consider that the God of inflexible justice also has infinite mercy and grace. I notice that God's thoughts of love are beyond our thoughts of despair. He is a God of unlimited depths of mercy and grace. At the same book of Exodus, Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. You notice that mercy is never deserved. Mercy is never earned. Now if you earn it, you get what you qualify for, which is the wages of sin, which is death. Now, death is the payment of our sins. So God is not obliged to show, to show mercy. If anything, nobody is obliged to show mercy. But Romans chapter 9 verse 15 says that I will have mercy, quoting God, on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Exodus 34 6 will say, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious. Now, while mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is actually getting what we don't deserve, unmerited favor. Though we have sinned and against an infinitely holy God, and we deserve eternal punishment, this is, if this is not what he gives us, then he's going to show us his mercy. But if he does not only show us, give us mercy, but on the other hand, he also gives us the bounties of his blessings in all eternity, that is grace. But you see, here is a problem. So how will God be merciful while upholding justice? For God will not flex his justice to accommodate sinfulness. Remember, all sin must be paid for. God will by no means clear the guilty and all sins have to be paid for. But in the midst of that, God intervenes and you know, although all sin must be punished and the sinner must die, an acceptable substitute may stand in place of the sinner. Uh, Hebrews 9.22b says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, what are the qualifications of, sub of the substitute? Uh, the substitute must himself be sinless, else he must be paying for his sins and not standing on behalf of others. Uh, the substitute must have must be an infinite sacrifice, else he will only satisfy the infinite justice of God for one person. But he needs to satisfy the infinite justice of God for everybody. And so he has to be an infinite sacrifice. And this introduces us to the substitute and the sin offering, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him, he made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we sinners might become the righteousness of God. Now the sovereign God, before the foundation of the world in eternity past, determined to show his glory through the redemption of his people. Uh, he that is God the Father made a covenant with his eternally begotten Son, that in the fullness of time Christ would come and save his people. And this text uh, points us to the particular detail about Christ. The atoning sacrifice here is shown to be without sin. He is shown to be the perfect sacrifice. Charles Spurgeon rightly states that he is the Son of God, he is the sinless Son of God, who was begotten by the Father before the worlds. He was begotten, remember, not made. He is co-eternal with God. He is co-existent and co-equal with God. He is the very God of very God. But also, notice that Jesus Christ is the son of Mary as was preached in the morning. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and did not inherit Adam's black blood. Now, Christ was man subject to all human infirmities except sin. That means that he stands in the sacred union as the God-man. Now, essentially, he's, pure, he's, he's essentially God, but that means that he is also purely man, except without a sinful nature. Now, this is the perfect sin offering. God made him, who knew no sin, to become sin. When Jesus was here. He walked in the wilderness of sorrow. He faced temptation, as we do but never sinned. Uh, this means that he did not only, uh, not only did he not sin, rather he did not know sin experientially. He was a stranger to it. Now being God, although he is all-knowing, and he perfectly knows everything, including sin and the nature of sin and the raging, uh, ravaging effects of sin, he had no communion with it. Now, the weak illustration has been told of the cancer uh, patient and the cancer doctor. Now, the oncologist or the cancer doctor himself 
if he's not suffering from cancer, he studies and understands the mutation of um, the cells, the cancerous cells inside the body. Now, the cancer patient, on the other hand, knows the ailment experientially. Now, in this case, it seems, uh, you know, in the weak illustration, Christ can be seen to be the doctor who knows about the ravaging effects of sin experientially, but hasn't had it in his body. Now, Christ was pure, he's perfect, he's blameless, he's sinless, he's spotless, the spotless Lamb of God. John 1.29b says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what was the transaction, if you may ask? What does this affect you? How does it come to affect us? For our sake, God made him to be sin, so that who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, rewind to the biggest question of all time. Can a wretched human know reconciliation with his maker? You see, the great exchange is here. Christ, having lived a righteous life that no human could ever live, finished his ministry by dying as a sin offering on the cross. On that cross, Jesus was hung between transgressors so that the prophecy would be fulfilled, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12, he says he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That Christ bore on the tree the sin of many. Now that moment, Holy God poured his righteous wrath on his eternally begotten son, who at that moment was sin embodiment and justice was satisfied. When Christ was put on that cross, the sin of everybody who would ever believe in him, past, present, and future, was satisfied in him. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. Yet he, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, why did God do this? Did he do this to save the whole world? I don't think so. But he did this that God's people may know peace and spiritual healing. You notice the last uh, literal thought of that portion from verse 16 to verse 21 keeps talking about reconciliation that we must know with God. Now in case uh, you uh, would say that this exchange was unjust or you came across an objection like that, that God did not have to make his sinless son a substitute for us to let us go because his son was sinless, uh, please observe that this was purely voluntary on the part of Christ according to the eternal covenant. At John 10, Christ says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Did you hear that Christ laid up his life that he may take it up again? He says in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. Mark 10, 45 says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, there is one God there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he drank the divine cup of God's wrath, in the last drops of that drag, he remarked in John 19.30, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his ghost. Uh, now, how does this legally suffice for justice? Uh, remember that this was rendered by the highest, full, determinate counsel of Almighty God. I remember that this was passed by the sovereign 
ruler of all universe. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord, of God to cr- the Lord to crush him. John 4.10 says in this is love. And not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. The word propitiation here would mean an appeasement that Christ's death was an atoning sacrifice. Uh, so for whom did Christ die? Uh, does this mean that God saved everybody in the world? Uh, certainly not. You see in the parable of the rich man, we see the rich man in a place of great torment. You notice that in Ephesians 3, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3, uh, Paul writes that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Uh, verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now you notice that in the eternal covenant, in eternity past, God foresaw the sin of man and planned his redemption. A God, the sovereign king, has chosen to show the mystery of his glorious deeds and purpose through all eternity by redeeming his people. The redeemed of God are gifts in the blessed eternal covenant. Those who are loved by God, in John 6.44, says that no one could come to, to God the Father unless God re, uh, draws him to himself. Now you notice that John 6.37 says, All the Father gives to the Son, to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, do you know for sure that you are numbered amongst God's people? Well, I have a question for you. Have you trusted in Christ alone? Are you looking to Christ alone as your Savior and Lord? If you are, please notice that it's because God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. God has predestined you for adoption to himself. And God has drawn you to Christ. You see, you have received his lordship in your life. And you know that the communion with his Holy Spirit. But if you have not, and you have followed this far, will you turn your face from the bountiful riches of God? You see, will you postpone this matter? I remember that you are not sustaining and we are heartbeat away from eternity. Behold, now is the hour of salvation. You look to Christ and live that you will truly share in the glorious promise of the sovereign God saying, I will raise him up in the last day. You see, salvation is of God. We are but fruits. God will hold us fast. Now, this statement as is of justification by faith is a legal statement. You notice that when God makes us the righteousness of God, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. It simply means that God has imputed his righteousness in us as he imputed our sin in Christ. Now to the courtroom of God, God is the judge of the living and the dead. And he will, on account of our imputed righteousness, he declares us right with him. We have been justified. Just the same way that our sin imputed on Christ did not make him a sinner at that moment. 
his imputed righteousness in us does not necessarily say that he converts us to be sinless. But he, may, he says that his um, righteousness has been accredited to our account. You see, we have three illustrations of justification by faith in the scriptures. One is of a man who is spiritually bankrupt, who has no spiritual financial credits. And justification is that God has put in credits that, does not, that do not belong to that man, that, but that belong to somebody else, who is Christ that this person may be spiritually, financially, uh, spiritually, financially enriched. The other thought is about a naked person. You see, we stand vulnerably naked before God. And God has been pleased to clothe his people with the righteousness of Christ. The third one here is the fact that we are legally indebted in debt because of our sin. And when God accredits his righteousness to us, it means that we can therefore stand before him in all righteousness. But this means that when God looks at us, he sees us to be just as though we never sinned having known the satisfaction of justice by punishment of our sins in the Passover lamb, Lord Jesus Christ, we know the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, secondly, it does not only mean that God forgives us on the account of Christ, it also means that God imputes the righteousness of Christ in, my, in our accounts. And it means that God makes us the righteous, the righteous ones of, 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 uh, of himself. Now you notice that there will be no neutrality in heaven. It's not only safe to come from negative to zero. Stephen Lawson says there will be no zeros in heaven. You need a credit score in heaven. You need righteousness in heaven. You do not, you do not only need to be neutral. And this is what the great exchange is about. This is what imputation means. And notice that it's a double imputation. Now, the great exchange, this divine exchange is the best news that ever happened. Our sins were credited to Christ's account and punished on that cross that his righteousness may be credited to our accounts that we can stand before God now and in all eternity as the righteous of God. Now do you see how sinful sinners may know peace with God and access his glorious presence? You see, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he's able to save us to the uttermost. Uh, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make an intercession for them. You know, this was the second best news that I had. Apart from hearing that God is committed at your salvation, and he actually justifies you in Christ, to notice that God is actually committed in your sanctification to glorification is incredible. Salvation belongs to God. You see, when I graduated from college, my father came and in his incredible speech, he said, no, nowadays we don't. Uh, give inheritance to our children as we used to in the past of land and cattle. You know, we give you an education and that is good enough. You know, praise God for that because you know, that education is what has um, given us sources of livelihood. And after that, it was almost as though uh, good enough, you now handed over to the world to actually you know, uh, sort yourself. But uh, about two years later, I got in trouble and I got arrested and I was put in Pangani police station and became a guest of the state for a night. And uh, of course, my phone had been taken away and all that. I couldn't access a lot of things. I called my father and I say, hey, I have uh, slept in custody. Um, and you know what he does? He, of course, comes and you know he deals with the case and uh, it's good enough and, and I'm released. 
I'm here to preach the gospel. Um, you see, God is like our fathers. He, he, he will not leave us. He, he does not only say, I have saved you at this point and justified you. So, you know, find your way. If anything, he's more committed to our sanctification than our own parents and guardians. He is working with us every day. And please see the depth of the mercy of God. Believe in Christ. The penalty and guilt of your sin will be dealt with. He will give you grace to be detached from the power of sin. And he promises to ultimately save us from the presence of sin. We shall be sinless and be like him when he appears. We shall dwell with him before the throne of God, praising him for all eternity. Now, if you have broken God's commands, if you have rejected his love, if you have disregarded his grace, this message is for you. Do not dilly-dally. Look to Christ and live. But you may also be feeling generally better than others, saying, Lord, I'm not like that murderer. I'm not an adult, right? I'm not a thief. But please understand that God's justice knows no playing informer. You know, you're not better because other people are worse. The only acceptable sacrifice is one. Our self-righteousness will fall away in shreds and expose our prideful, arrogant hearts that say, I don't need my maker. You may be thinking that those people who believe in Jesus are hypocrites and don't want to be like them. It's true, many are professors of religion who do not possess life in Christ. Uh, but you see, these goats amid sheep, some wolves, sheep clothing will be cast away if they die in their rebellion. But do not look to them. I humbly assure you to see that you fool yourself to your own harm to say that you will not become like those hypocrites so you won't come to Christ. Look to Christ. We, true Christians, regrettable, uh, sin, regrettably so, uh, but Christ is our great Savior. He is our all in all. Uh, please hear Christ's promise to hold us fast and to bring us before his glorious presence. In him, we have become the righteousness of God. We stand before God, justified by faith, bearing an alien righteousness, and a righteousness that is not our own. Christ's righteousness. God sees his beloved as righteous. We are secure in him as today, as in all eternity, as uh, Paul and uh, Luther, who are in heaven, we remain secure in him. Now you're invited to come in the presence of the Holy God to know peace with God and access him in his, in his presence. Uh, so will you pass this blessing? And why is it important that we know all these things? Let me finally show you the immediate context of this verse. Now 1 Corinthians 5 from 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See that we are ambassadors of Christ. Think of God not as a ruler without compassion. We have already seen the bounties of the, the riches of the love of God. See, God is not only a, a person or, or entity who we are representing because we are coerced. You notice elsewhere, Paul will say that the love of God compels us or controls us. You see, in view of the stores of his infinite mercy and grace, depth that he has gone to save us, we cannot do better but to be 
ambassadors of Christ, to represent Christ, to preach him. But you notice that we are also a new creation. God has made his creation in Christ, his new creation in Christ. Now you see, God is pleased to dig up ears for unbelievers that they may respond to his um, word. You notice, if a person is to just clothe themselves, they are to be like a leper who is uh, so badly undone that they keep wasting away day on day, and they keep clothing themselves with a white sheet, and they keep spoiling and soiling that white sheet. But you see, God making a person righteous means that he's actually healing them from the inside so that when he clothes them, it means that they do not continue soiling that garment. And that is what the new creation in Christ means. It means that these are people who have changed attitudes and changed way of, way of, way of life. And they, they, they just have a new way of life. And because of that, they are ambassadors of Christ. So are you living like a new creation? Are you an ambassador and a faithful emissary of Christ? Now, to those who have not come to Christ, I say again, consider that if you die without knowing peace with God, you have lost it all. If you say you have not sinned, God will find your sins and expose them. If you say you need no reconciliation, you throw away your only hope. So I humbly beseech you, be reconciled to God. And for those who are reconciled to God, who have been adopted into his family, let us be ambassadors of Christ. Let us mourn of our sins because they deter fellowship with our loving Father. Yet mourn with hope, knowing that God remembers them no more, and seek to keep short accounts of repentance and believing in the gospel that will grow in assurance until the blessed morn when we see his face. Let us ask God to fix eternity in our eyeballs, that we may walk with that confidence of seeing him when he comes in Christ. Let us stand up to exalt the fairest Lord Jesus.